0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Um, Love stories. Yeah, today we're going to be studying one of the greatest love stories of all time. Which I know is kind of like starting your sermon and saying, Hey, we're gonna watch a chick flick for the next 40 minutes, and I've just lost half my audience. Apparently, this little girl, plus every preteen boy, and most of the men in the audience. But for the men and for those violent boys, there is a hint of war, death, and dramatic rescue in this story. So if you listen closely, there'll be something in it for you but that's really not the focus of the story the main thing is this is a story about love so if you're still with me i want you to think about a wedding not just any wedding i want to think about the perfect wedding which might be your own maybe not but the perfect wedding all the elements of the perfect wedding bride and groom they're probably young They're probably looking the best they will ever look at that particular moment, and both of them are so in love. In that moment, as that couple thinks about their life together, it's hard for them to even imagine they wouldn't feel exactly like that for the rest of their life. And the oxytocin is flowing, they have the perfect mate, they're young, energetic in love, and everything their spouse does is awesome. Or very easily changed. And the world is theirs. They have plans and dreams full of all the great things that life has to offer kids, success, the house with a white picket fence. In counseling, there's a term for this. It's called idealistic distortion. It's common among newlyweds and engaged couples. It's distorting reality into a false ideal. What could go wrong? You know, if you've been to one of these weddings and you have a couple of years on you, you sometimes sit in the audience thinking, they have no idea what they're in for. No idea at all. So, here's the question for all the marrieds. If you knew what you know now, would you have married your spouse? If you knew he was going to snore and keep you up at night, would you have married him? If you knew she was never going to learn to cook like your mama, would you have married her? That your bodies are going to change. He's going to lose his hair. And those are the easy ones. What about the tough stuff? The tough times. Loss. The loss of jobs, the loss of possessions, the loss of relationships, maybe even the loss of children, disappointment, failure, maybe even betrayal of the worst possible kind. Would you still, knowing all that, get married? Maybe you've experienced some of these things in your own life. Maybe it's in your own marriage. Maybe it's in the marriage of those you care deeply about. But that is the story of Hosea today. God tells him to go marry a woman with the unfortunate name of Gomer, and then tells him about the pain, the tears, and the betrayal and the humiliation, the anger and the loss that he will experience because he is marrying her. And then Hosea obeys. He even loves her, which is really all we need. Someone who will love us not just on our best days, but even during and in spite of our worst days or weeks or even years. Because just like in marriage, just like in this story of Hosea, our worst reveals God's best. Our worst sin reveals the depths of God's gracious and redeeming love. And that's the love story we're going to look at today. The book of Hosea is 14 chapters long. And since some of you are actually want to watch Tony Romo play for the first time in two months, and it's a noon kickoff, Here's how we're going to attack 14 books, 14 chapters of Hosea. I'm going to focus on the first chapter, which is really the story of God's gracious electing love. And then we're going to focus on the third chapter, which is focused on God's gracious and redeeming love. And then lastly, as we have through this whole series of Christ in the Old Testament, we're going to look at how does Hosea us to Christ? What is it about him that he does or doesn't do or he does and does well or falls short that leads us to Christ? So turn with me to the book of Hosea, it's just past Daniel, or if you're firing up your electronic device, let me set the stage for the book of Hosea. The entire book covers the ministry of Hosea, which was from 755 to 722 B.C., long before the time of Christ. It's after the death of Solomon when the nation of Israel splits into two kingdoms, north and south. Here in this book, the northern kingdom is called Israel, sometimes Ephraim. So it's not referring to the whole country when it says Israel. And they split from the southern kingdom, which here is called Judah. And after the split, the king of the north had a problem. The temple was still in Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom. And so, what he said was, well, rather than have my people go down to Jerusalem three times a year, see their old friends, realize that the center of the religion is not in their kingdom, I'm going to build new temples. I'm going to build one in Bethel and one in Dan. This moment is not on the church brochure for why you name a church Bethel, because they built a golden calf at Bethel and Dan. And they said, come to Bethel, come to Dan, and you can worship here. You don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem. And so that led to this crazy, mixed-up combination of worship of the one true God, Yahweh, and the worship of Baal and the golden calf. And so it's this idolatry that Hosea is prophesying against. He's prophesying against the idolatry and the betrayal of the northern kingdom. And he is the last prophet before the northern kingdom falls. You know, prophets usually had rough lives. They're ministering to people who didn't want to listen to them, didn't like their message, maybe hated them, even killed them only because they were saying what God had told them. But Hosea, I think, had it much worse, far worse. Let's start reading chapter 1, verse 1, and you'll see why. But first, a word of warning. This is a uh, mixed room. I'm going to tell you, there's a couple of words in this text that uh, you wouldn't want your little kids running around the house yelling and screaming. Um, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read them. They're in the text. Um, I'm not going to dwell on them. I'm going to assume that the adults in the room know what these words mean. Uh, If you need to take a second during the sermon and whisper what they mean to your kids, that's great. If you want to talk about it with them afterwards, that's great too. If you want to hand them a coloring book or something here uh, as we read, then that's fine too. However you choose to do it. But you can't get around those words as an important part of this story. So let's read the first chapter, the first couple of verses. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Biri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take, yourse- take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So this is the first of four commands that the Lord gives to Hosea Go marry an adulterous woman. Now, names here through this story are very important, so let's start with Hosea. Its Hebrew is actually Hosea, which is from the same root as Joshua, which is from the same root that Jesus' name comes from. And so Hosea literally means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. The text isn't clear if Gomer is already sexually active prior to the marriage, but it is clear And Hosea understood this, that she was going to be unfaithful to him. Let that sink in. He knew she was going to be unfaithful, and yet he still married her. So Gomer here symbolizes the people of Israel, particularly the northern kingdom, and God has equated her behavior, her sexual behavior, her sexual infidelity, with idolatry and unfaithfulness to the Lord. And then here in verse 4 is the second command. And it comes at that joyous moment when Hosea's first son is born. And the Lord said to him, "'Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel.' And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So his son's name is Jezreel, which is a valley in Israel where many battles took place. But what he's referring to here was at the beginning of the separation of the kingdoms, there was a king Jehu in the north, and he killed some of the kings from the Davidic line. He killed Joram, he killed Ahaziah, who were kings of Judah, and 42 of their relatives. And it's for this, for this violence against the house of David, that the line of Jehu is going to be extinguished, which it was there in the Jezreel Valley in 752 BC when Shalom assassinated Zechariah, the fourth of Jehu's descendants to rule in the northern kingdom. And the army of Israel there was defeated, which is the reference to his bow was broken there in the valley. So the first son, throughout his life, is a daily reminder of the prophecy to the king that his days are numbered. You know, it's kind of like naming a kid uh, growing up here in the south, naming a kid Gettysburg. Or if you're Japanese, naming a child Hiroshima. Neither of these names are making it on the most popular baby list. They're a constant reminder of something bad that happened. And unfortunately, the names get worse from here. So here's another child and another command, the third starting in verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy. For I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Not only is judgment coming, worse, the Lord says, Lo on me, you are not my people, no special relationship, no special protection. In fact, if we were to study chapter 2, chapter 2 reads much like a divorce decree. The Lord is finally saying, I have had enough. He outlines all the violations of the marriage covenant, which is the Mosaic covenant that the nation of Israel entered into between the Lord on Mount Sinai when they'd come out of Egypt. And the Mosaic covenant is a conditional covenant. It is conditioned on Israel's obedience. Here's what Deuteronomy 28.1 says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all the commandments that I command to you today, the Lord God will set you high above the nations of the earth. The Lord will make Israel a great nation. And then you have 13 verses full of all the blessings that come with their obedience. And then you get to verse 15, it says But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command to you today, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Then you have 53 verses. Of curses. 15 of blessing, 53 of curses. So God has had mercy, but that mercy has come to an end and He is breaking this covenant. Before we get lost in the legal language of the covenants, let's go back to Hosea as a man. He was a prophet who spoke for God, but God asked him to live out that prophecy in a very personal way. Why? Why is that? Why would God ask him to go marry this woman? Not just marry her, have children with her, some of which might not even be his. Why would he do that? Here's what I think. There is no deeper, more intimate human relationship than that of husband and wife no earthly relationship can generate the type of joy the type of peace and the type of love that that relationship can and at the same time no relationship can incite greater pain or hurt or loss than a marriage can If you've been married for more than a little while, you know this. You've seen this. Some of us have experienced that more than others. So God uses this special relationship to illustrate the effect, the weight of Israel's unfaithfulness, the effect that it has on the husband, on the Lord, so that we might begin to understand the ugliness of our sin and the grief that it causes so let me give you a personal example that illustrates this i am a deep sleeper fortunately i rarely dream but over 23 years of marriage i've had a couple of dreams where serena my wife has been unfaithful to me in the dream i'm not claiming prophetic dreams um She, in 23 years, has never given me uh, any reason to suspect her faithfulness. But I'll tell you, in these dreams, she is cold and has no remorse whatsoever. She doesn't care what it's done to me. She doesn't care what it's done to our kids, what it's done to our ministry, and what it's done to our testimony. I'll get so mad in these dreams that I wake myself up in the middle of the night angry. I can't go back to sleep. I'll lay there, and I'll tell myself, I know it was a dream. I know it was a dream. And while we've gone through tough times in our marriage, I have no reason to suspect Serena. But there I am in the middle of the night, wide awake, and I'm still mad. So, what do you do? Hey, You won't believe the dream I just had. You won't believe what you did to me in my dream. And she apologizes, right? No, no. (laughs) That is not how it goes. She rolls back over, (coughs) and I sit there and fume. I can't go back into my dream and, like, dream that she would apologize. So, I'm stuck, I get so angry when that happens that I can get literally sick to my stomach. I have a stomach ache. I am so hurt by that. And it's not real. It is just an image, a fraction of the pain that is caused when marriages fail. I know in a room this large, there are those who can relate to this pain in a way that is much more than just a dream. That you relate to it directly and personally, and it is very real to you. Either as the recipient of this, or maybe even as the offender. But the story of Hosea will eventually offer you, offer all of us, hope. Because as I said, it is a great love story, even if it doesn't sound like one right now. Because our worst shows God at His best. So if Israel is no longer the covenant people of God, if chapter 2 is this big divorce decree, because in verse 2 of chapter 2 it says, For she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. So that's good news for Hosea, right? He's off the hook. He can just leave and start over, get on with his life. Let's pick up the story in chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. And is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So is Hosea off the hook? No, the Lord says, go again, indicating there's been some sort of break, some sort of separation between Hosea and Gomer. The Lord says, love This woman, which means, understandably, he probably doesn't love her at this point. In fact, she's loved by another man and she's been unfaithful again and again and again. And in case we miss the symbolism here, Hosea reminds us that this is just like the idolatry of the Israelites who forsook their God for false gods and for raisin cakes. They don't even sound like they taste good. Raisin cakes? Who eats raisin cakes? Oatmeal cookies with raisins, maybe, but raisin cakes? Then in verse 2, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethich of barley. Text doesn't say how Hosea felt about this, about the experience. But for you boys who are looking for the dramatic rescue, here it is. The great rescue that taken moment where Hosea goes in, guns ablaze, and rescues his wife. But that's not how it happens. I think this is how it went. Hosea probably had to go to the city gates. And in front of the elders of his community, he had to buy back something that was already his. Infidelity is embarrassing for everybody. Can you imagine the shame and the humiliation he felt as he stood before the elders of his community and bought back his wife? I don't know if you can imagine the humiliation of marrying a prostitute. And this isn't one with a heart of gold that turns into super wife at some point. You know, that one, like, pretty woman or whatever, some fantasy where she stays faithful. No, this wife stays unfaithful. She leaves him for another man. And to get her to come back, you have to pay the other guy. Not beat him. Not burn his house down. You have to pay him. Paying for something he already owns, he is redeeming his wife for the price of a dead slave. If you were to go look at Exodus 21, 32, if your ox gores a slave, you got to pay 30 shekels of silver to the owner of the slave. And so if you look at the 15 pieces of silver here plus the significant amount of barley Commentators say this is pretty much what 30 shekels of silver is worth. No evidence of repentance, no statement of her grief. It just says that he paid. And so then Hosea turns to her and he says, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man so will I also be to you. The infidelity, the unfaithfulness, it has to stop. You will be in my house and will have no other lovers. And that last phrase, so will I also be to you, it's a little ambiguous. It could mean that he, like Gomer, is going to devote a certain period of time to really focus on their relationship. Or it could mean that he's going to abstain from sexual relations with her for a period of time, which kind of parallels verse 4 that says, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. So verse 3 right here in chapter 3 is pretty much the last thing we hear about Hosea personally. That's how his story ends. But there is more for Israel. And we see a glimpse of it here in verse 4 and 5. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods, And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. So as part of the judgment for their sin, Israel would lose their king, lose their place of worship, lose their priests, may even lose their positions as priests to God which happened to them when the southern kingdom fell in 586 BC and again in 780 AD when the second temple was destroyed. And after many days, which is now many years and even many centuries, aside from a faithful remnant, Israel has not returned to their God nor their Messiah from the line of David. But just as other pieces of this prophecy have already come true, so too will this one one day. In fact, I skipped the last two verses of chapter 1, which points to the same day. And it says Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. It shall be said to them, they are children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. A great reversal is coming. A great restoration is coming. Jezreel, that place of slaughter, that place of bloodshed, will be great. The kingdoms will be reunited together under their Messiah King and the children of whoredom They will be called the children of the living God. So how does this happen? Are, are, are the consequences so bad, the judgment so great, they finally have enough? They finally come to their right mind? The answer is found not in what they did. It's what their husband, the Lord, did. In response to the most disgusting and irrational sin you can imagine, what does he do? He loves them. Verse 14 of chapter 2 says, Therefore, this is the Lord speaking to Israel, Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. The response of the most powerful being in the universe, the almighty, omnipotent God, in the face of rebellion and infidelity, what does He do? He allures Israel. He speaks tenderly. It doesn't wipe them away forever, which is what they deserve. It's what we deserve because our worst shows his best. So why is Hosea and Gomer one of the greatest love stories of all time? What does this story tell us about the love of God? It tells us some things about God's love, candidly, that are very different than the love That we often experience or give so here are three aspects of god's love on display in the story of hosea start at the beginning first god's love graciously elects he chooses to love without any merit found in the object of his love look at hosea he tells him go and love a woman who is already hard to love, who is going to be unfaithful to you, abandon you, and love another, and you're going to have to buy her back. No mention of anything in the text that is good or valuable or lovable about Gomer. You know, our love is often the opposite. We look for the good and then decide if we will love. Second, God's love is a jealous love. He rightly deserves and expects our faithfulness. In fact, Hosea 6.6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He wants a relationship with us. Yet we are prone to distraction and to lesser things. Lastly. His love redeems and restores in a way that ours can't. It's the great reversal the story Hosea tells us that his love can take an unfaithful prostitute wife worth the price of a dead slave and pursues her, allures her, whispers to her and then redeems and restores her as his wife, and her children as his children. So what could be a better love story than that? I think there's only one. and That's the love story of Jesus and his church, his bride. His love story with us. Which brings us to how is Hosea a type of Christ? How does he point us to Christ to the greatest love story? And I'll give you a brief list. Well, as I mentioned, they share the same root of their name, God saves. And it describes both of their ministries. Hosea was called by God to deliver his word and live out his word. Jesus not only spoke what the Father gave him to say, Jesus was the Word made flesh. Hosea delivered the news of coming judgment of the covenant. Jesus fulfilled that covenant and then inaugurated a new and better covenant. Hosea obeyed God knowing the pain and betrayal he would suffer. Jesus obeyed his Father for the joy that was set before him. When he endured the cross. Hosea redeemed what was already his. In the same way that Jesus redeemed. Those that the father had already given him. Hosea suffered shame and embarrassment. While redeeming Gomer. And the son of God condescended. To come out of heaven. To take on flesh. To become the man Jesus. To live in weakness as an infant, as a child. And ultimately to be rejected, mocked, beaten, and killed. Hosea redeemed Gomer for a small price. which was the same price that Judas was paid to betray Jesus. Yet Jesus paid an immeasurable price. His life, bearing the sins of the world and the infinite and just wrath of God poured out on him instead of us. And ultimately, that's what gives us hope. When we look at our wickedness, our serial unfaithfulness, our unlovableness, our hope is not in any merit or inherent goodness. In ourselves, it is our faith in God's love. That gracious, electing, jealous, redeeming, and restoring love. As First John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this promise is our hope, our peace, our joy. And from it flows our ability to love God and to love one another. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You loved us, not in our goodness, but your word says, even while we were your enemies. In rebellion against you. And while you love us. You know. All the wickedness that is in us. You know what we will do. What we will fail to do. You know the times we will stray. Times we will be distracted. Times we will. Run after things that are. Not nearly as wonderful as you. Even raisin cakes. Father, I, just reflecting on this, I can't imagine why you would love us. And if you hadn't revealed in your word that you do, I know I'd doubt it. So, Father, we're thankful today. We're thankful for the obedience of your Son, Jesus who suffered more shame, humiliation than we can even imagine out of love for us. So Father, my prayer is that that reality, that truth would be real to us today in the way that unfaithfulness of a spouse can be. And Father, that that Realness would transform our lives, that we would feel your love in a new and different way and that that love would pour out to those around us. Father, then, in doing that would bring your Son the glory that he deserves. So I pray that in his name and in the power of your Holy Spirit,